today we are continuing in our series on the Beatitudes that are found in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, today we are in verse 6, uh, looking at the fourth Beatitude. And here's what it says. And I want you to remember that these are the words of Jesus. And oh, by, by the way, before we get there, let me mention that as I got into preparing the message, it, it grew on me, like, like the content grew. And so there are quite a few scripture references I'll make today that are not on your outline, uh, but there's a pen on the seat in front of you. And so uh, you can be ready and, and include any things that aren't in your outline if you want to come back to them later. But uh, here's what this fourth beatitude says. Again, uh, this is Jesus who spoke this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I was just looking out, and I'm, I'm borderline blind at a distance now, but I, I just noticed a couple of folks that used to be a part of our church that I want to say hi to. Uh, the Bazaars, Ray and Lori Bazaar, thank you guys for being here. And Angela Schoen and all of her children, thank you guys uh, for being here. It's good, good to see all of you uh, here today, thank you. So again, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now I think a starting point of understanding this beatitude is understanding that this reference to hunger and thirst would have really had a very different meaning to the people who heard Jesus say this than it does to people who are living in Pataskala, Ohio in the 21st century. You see, a man uh, working in Palestine at the time of Jesus probably ate meat about once a week. Uh, working men and day laborers were... Uh, never very far from hunger, often not very far from, from actually facing the possibility of starvation. It wasn't possible for most of the population in first century Palestine to turn on a tap and have clean and cold water pour into their home like I think we can safely say all of us here today uh, have the experience of. Uh, that wasn't possible for them. Having enough food to eat, having enough water to drink for many people in the Middle East in the first century was a daily struggle, a daily struggle. Here in the United States and really in the entirety of the Western world in the 21st century, we, at least most of us, the vast majority of us cannot relate to the reality of a daily hunger and thirst. We can't relate to the reality of each day being just like, how do I get enough food and how do I get enough water? And yet, many of the people hearing Jesus uh, when he spoke this would have lived in that reality. And even those who didn't would have been very familiar with it because it was all around them. Now, I'll speak for myself. I know this is hard to believe, but I have had a few hunger pangs in my life. But I have never been hungry without being perfectly clear that there was food available to me anytime I wanted. And, uh, and so I could always easily access food. I've been thirsty before, but never with any question that I could satisfy my thirst 
at any old time I decided to get up off the couch and get a drink. You know. So thirsty. But the water's all the way in at the fridge. So I always knew my, my thirst could be satisfied. I mean, in the United States, we describe ourselves as being hungry between a 7 a.m. breakfast and an 11.45 a.m. lunch. I'm so hungry. And so we need to realize that the hunger Jesus is describing is not the kind of hunger that can be satisfied by having a mid-morning snack. He's describing the kind of hunger of a person who is starving for food. He, he is describing the kind of thirst of someone who will die unless they find something to drink. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And because this is the kind of hunger that would have been in view, this is a very demanding beatitude. In fact, William Barclay says that it is probably the most demanding of the Beatitudes. It essentially asks us, how much do you want goodness in your life? How badly do you really want to live in a way that pleases God? How intense is your desire for righteousness? How desperately... Do you want to live a godly life? Do you want goodness like a man who is at risk of starving wants food? Do you want to live righteously as much as a person who is about to die of thirst wants a drink of water? This beatitude lets us know that the blessed person is the person who is truly hungry for goodness, truly thirsty for righteousness. It's a demanding beatitude because it tells us that the life that is blessed is the life that hungers for goodness like a first century Middle Eastern day laborer hungers for food. It tells us that the life that is blessed is the life that thirsts for righteousness like a first century day laborer with no tap water and no bottled water to be found thirst for water. It's a demanding beatitude because we learn that the blessed life is the one that has first century Middle Eastern hunger for righteousness, but many of us have 21st century Western hunger for righteousness. We hunger for righteousness like a person who's already had three square meals hungers for a fourth, which is to say we're not really all that hungry. We thirst for righteousness like a person who's already asked for four refills of Diet Coke and then asked for a fifth, which is to say we're not actually all that thirsty. And so this beatitude is very demanding. It, it calls us out about exactly how much we care about righteousness, about how much we actually care about goodness, how much we truly care about living in a way that pleases God. So it's extremely demanding. But in another way of looking at the beatitude, it is a very comforting beatitude. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. It's a comforting beatitude because it doesn't say blessed are those who achieve righteousness. It says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's comforting because if only those who achieved righteousness were blessed, wouldn't be nobody blessed. Nobody in here at least. Oh, that was funny. (laughs) Nobody anywhere. Nobody would be blessed. The Bible tells us this. Romans 3.10 is crystal clear about this. There are none that are righteous, no, not one. There's not a single one of us in here today who can say that we always do what pleases God. None of us here today can say we always do what's right, we never do what's wrong, we live in perfect obedience to God. None of us can say, look at me. I've achieved perfect obedience. I am totally good all the time. My thoughts are always pure. I never sin in thought, word, or deed. I have arrived. I am the pinnacle of goodness and righteousness. None of us can say that. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so it's demanding, but it's also a comforting beatitude because it lets us know that it isn't the person who achieves righteousness that is blessed since there's no one that's righteous. It is the person that longs for righteousness, hungers and thirsts for righteousness that is blessed. It is the person who truly cares about righteousness, really wants goodness and righteousness even though they have not attained it. Again, none of us here today are living in a way that allows us to hold ourselves up, point to ourselves, and and exclaim, righteous. We can't. If that's what was required to be blessed, we would not be blessed. But Jesus says it is the person who longs for, hungers for, is thirsty for righteousness that is blessed. The one who knows they don't have what they need to sustain themselves, but they're desperate for what they don't have. That's the person that's blessed. Like the first century day laborer with no food is desperate to find food, the person that is blessed is desperate to find righteousness. Like a first century traveler who's out in the desert with no water is desperate to find water. The person who's desperate for righteousness is blessed. Those who truly care about righteousness are blessed. And of course, this is a just wonderfully encouraging thing for Jesus to have said and and to have taught us. But I also think we all, at least I know I do, feel a little bit uncomfortable with this. It sounds a little too convenient. It sounds a little bit like the person who's always making excuses for their bad behavior and then assuring everybody, but my intentions were good. 
my intentions were good. It's like the employee who shows up late for work every single day, always with a different excuse, and always announcing to everybody, I meant to be here on time. It just didn't work out again. At some point we conclude, no, I think if you had wanted to, you could have figured out a way to do it. I'm not sure you wanted to so bad. I didn't mean to yell again. It was just I didn't think I'd get this frustrated again. My intentions were good. Whatever. It feels too convenient. And even though we kind of like this for ourselves, we get really uncomfortable with it being applied to anybody else. I'll take the grace. I want you all to live right. That's, that's kind of how we, that's kind of how we are. And so we see other people failing to attain uh, righteousness, even though they claim they want it. And we respond to them like Yoda. No, try not do or do not. There is no try. And yet we see in Scripture that God does commend people based on the desires of their heart even when it does not translate to achievement. We see this very clearly in the life of King David in the Old Testament in a, in a variety of ways, some that are obvious that I'll mention, but, but one that maybe is not so obvious. David, you, you might remember, you might not, but David longed to build a temple for God. But he never achieved the building of the temple. That, that had to wait for, for Solomon uh, to do that. But of his desire to build a temple for God, God said to him, according to uh, 1 Kings 8.18, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. No achievement, just a desire. And God said, you did well that it was in your heart. We also see in the life of King David that he was commended by God, even though he was a case study of the truthfulness that there is none righteous, no, not one. Many of you are familiar, but some of you may not, so let me give you a quick refresher on the life of David. David did a lot of great things for God, but David also failed on the grandest of scales. He was guilty during his life of not just like, oh, I should have done that and I didn't, or oh, I told a little white lie one time several years ago. That's not who David was. David was guilty of the worst of sinfulness. He had sex with another man's wife, committed adultery. And then, fearful that his sin was going to be discovered because, oh shoot, Bathsheba got pregnant. He called her husband in from battle. Her husband, get this, was out fighting for David. 
in David's army while he's back having sex with the guy's wife. And so David calls him back in from battle. He hatched this plan. I'll call him back. They'll get together. Nobody will ever know. It was me that caused the pregnancy. But Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was an honorable man. And he was not willing to enjoy the pleasures of physical intimacy with his wife while the rest of his soldiers were out fighting. So David's plan was ruined. But he was desperate to not be found out. And so what did David do? He sent Uriah back into the battle. He informed the commanding officer to put Uriah on the front lines and then to order a retreat that everybody would know about except for Uriah so that he would be left alone in the battle and would be killed. And that is exactly what happened. King David, adulterer, murderer. There's no two ways about it. Murderer. And yet both for Samuel 13, 14 and Acts 13, 22 called David a man after God's own heart. You might remember that Jesus is often referred to in the New Testament as the son of David. It's that David. The same David who committed adultery, the same David who had someone murdered. How could this be? How could David, a sinner on such a grand scale, how could he be so commended throughout the Bible? How could he be set aside for special commendation by God? The answer is that even though he failed miserably, we see in Scripture that he truly did have a longing to live for God. He did. He failed, but his desire to live for God was genuine. And you see this in his willingness to repent. You see it in the sorrowful way that he would seek God's forgiveness. The 51st Psalm is a a beautiful psalm, and it was uh, written after his sin with Bathsheba. I'm not going to read it all, but I want to give you just enough so that you can kind of get a sense of the heart of David. Here are some of the things that he wrote. Again, after the sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Listen to this part. You are right. God, you are right in your verdict against me. You are right in your judgment of me. You're right. I'm wrong. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart. I don't have one. Create in me a clean heart. God, don't cast me from your presence. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Deliver me from blood guilt. And God, the only sacrifice I have to give you is a broken and contrite heart. 
I am sorry. David was commended by God because even though he failed greatly, he always returned to God. He always came back to God. He always repented. He always sought after God again. He continually owned up to his sin. He continually threw himself on God's mercy. And then he recommitted himself to the pursuit of living in a way that pleases God. Why does Jesus commend longing for righteousness, desiring righteousness? Why does he bless that? Why doesn't he take Yoda's attitude and say to us in regards to living right, do or do not, there is no try? Here's why. He knows that righteousness is beyond us. He knows that righteousness is out of our reach. If we could achieve it, he would take Yoda's approach with us. But he knows it's beyond us. The 103rd Psalm tells us, God has compassion on those who fear him because, quote, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. It's kind of a creative way of saying God knows that we are weak. He knows perfect goodness, obedience, and righteousness are beyond us. And that's why the Bible is so clear from beginning to end that there is no one who is righteous. And you say, well, Brian, this all sounds a little too accommodating. We can resist sin. We can live right You yourself tell us that all of the time, and you are right, I do, and that is right. Absolutely, we can resist sin. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. Absolutely, we can live for God. The Holy Spirit indwells us and produces fruit in our lives, produces obedience in our lives. But friends, it remains true that perfect goodness, perfect obedience, true righteousness is beyond us. And if you don't think so, you need to have a little talk with the Apostle Paul. This was a man whose life was given in service to Jesus Christ. He wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. He was used mightily by God to take the gospel to people who didn't know about Jesus, people who were not a part of the community of faith. He suffered for the cause of Christ. He ultimately died for the cause of Christ. And he said of himself that if anyone could boast about how good they live, it was him. And yet, here's what this Apostle Paul knew about achieving righteousness. He shared it with us in Romans chapter 7. He wrote, remember who's writing this, the man who said of himself, if anyone can boast about how good they live, it's me. And now listen to what he writes. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, 
This I keep on doing. Although I want to do good, evil is there with me. In my inner being, somewhere down in there, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work in me. What a wretched man I am. Paul didn't say that. He didn't write that before his conversion. Paul wrote that as a converted person who was living for God. He desired to do what is good, but could not carry it out. Familiar with that? This fourth beatitude is demanding because it sets a high bar for us in terms of our desire for righteousness. But it's a comforting beatitude because it doesn't require the achievement, but true longing for righteousness in order to be blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then it says this, for they will be filled. How can people who are not capable of achieving righteousness, for whom righteousness is out of reach, how are they able to have their hunger for righteousness filled, their thirst for righteousness satisfied? And Paul gives the answer to that in Romans 7.24. After lamenting his inability to live consistent with how he desired to live, and after erupting with this admission that he is a wretched man, he asks a question. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? And then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. How can the hunger and thirst for righteousness be filled, be satisfied when we're not capable of achieving it? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 23 and 24 tell us this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it goes on and says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, we receive him as our Savior and Lord. When we get saved from our sins and get saved from the penalty of death that sin has earned for us, there are powerful things that begin to happen in our lives. The first one, Romans 3, has already told us. We're justified. We're justified. People have often described justification as being made as if we'd never sinned. We're made right with God. We're justified with God. Romans 4 tells us something very exciting. It tells us about imputed righteousness. What's that, you ask? Well, let's find out. Here's what Romans 4, 1 through 8 says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather in the flesh, discovered in this matter? Now, it's referencing a a topic that was covered in the preceding verses, and that topic is whether a person is justified before God by being good 
by their, by their own works and their own merit, or whether a person is justified by God simply through faith. So that's what it's referring to. What shall we say, uh, what shall we, uh, say that Abraham, our forefather in the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. David said, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not count against them. Notice what's said in these verses. Abraham, the father of faith, was not counted righteous by God based on what he did, based on being good in himself. He was counted righteous by God simply because he had faith in God. He believed God, and it was credited as righteousness. Some translations say it was counted as righteousness. The King James Version speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God, in in, in King James English, imputeth or imputes righteousness without works. Credit, count, impute, they all communicate the same idea, which is that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, He counts us as righteous, even though we're not righteous. People incapable of achieving righteousness, only capable of hungering for righteousness, get counted as though they are righteous. Verse 5 says, he justifies the ungodly. He declares the unrighteous righteous by ascribing to them the righteousness of Jesus. By imputing to their account the righteousness of of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5:21 tells us about this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not a perfect analogy, but it might help us understand a little bit to imagine that my 19-year-old son Aaron were to overdraw his checking account, which I'm happy to say he's never done. Never done. Very, very good. Never has done that. But let's imagine that he did. And because the folks at the bank know he's my son, they call me up and they say, hey, Brian, your son has overdrawn his account. There is nothing in it. And so I say to them, well, transfer some of my money into his account. I'll cover it. That's what God has done for us. He looks at us. 
He sees that our righteousness account is in a deficit. (laughs) And he transfers Christ's righteousness over to our account. That's what he does. Now here's a weakness in the analogy. It would not take Aaron overdrawing his account very much until I would not have enough money to cover for him. But Jesus has so much righteousness, infinite righteousness, so there's enough in his account to cover the righteousness deficit for everyone who has ever lived or ever will live, including you. We get counted as righteous by God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness simply by placing our faith In Him. Not righteous on our own. Counted as righteous. Declared righteous. Viewed by God as righteous. Because Christ is righteous. And we've identified with Him. We've said, yes, I want in on that awesome deal. And God says, you're in. You got it. But even then, credited as righteous, we're still like Paul from Romans 7 at that point and for the rest of our lives. We've been declared righteous, but we're still plagued by our old sin nature. Christians try to deny this all the time, but I know them. (laughs) And they are plagued by their old sin nature. We've been declared righteous, but we don't always live righteously. We live in the already, but the not yet. Where we have been redeemed, we've been changed, we are new creations in Jesus, but we don't always live in the reality of that. Our old nature overtakes us sometimes. We don't live up to who Christ has declared us to be. And so our entire lifetimes are spent pursuing trying to become the people who Jesus has counted us as being. The people that Jesus has declared us to be. And we call this lifetime pursuit sanctification. It is the process over a lifetime of becoming more like Jesus. He declares us righteous... And then we spend our entire lives trying to live like who he's declared us to be. Growing in righteousness. Becoming more like Jesus but never fully attaining, never fully achieving. Progressing but not arriving. Which keeps us throughout our entire lives in a position of hungering and thirsting for more than what we obtain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. So where's the filling? Where's the satisfaction? What's a progression, actually? The first stage is being credited as righteous. Having Christ's righteousness imputed to you. If you're here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, 
he sees the righteousness of Jesus. The second stage is what I just talked about. Spending your life in pursuit of becoming more and more like Jesus. Process of sanctification. Becoming more yielded to God but never fully attaining. Overcoming some sins. Most of us here today can tell of some sin that we used to give ourselves to that now it has no hold on us anymore. Sanctification. Did its, did its work in our lives. But then there are some other sins that we're resisting a good bit of the time, but not always. We, we, we mess up on those sometimes. And then there are some that we're still struggling with on a far too regular basis, but at least we've not made peace with it. We are struggling against it, and that's evidence of sanctification. When you, when you move from well, hey, I'm doing this, and, you know, like, really, who cares? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. When you move from that to, like, shoot, I'm still struggling with this, but I really don't want to be anymore. I, I know this is wrong. I, I shouldn't be doing this, and God, I'm sorry. That's evidence of sanctification. And this, this process, this process of sanctification happens because we hunger and we thirst for more righteousness than what we've obtained. And so we, we keep pursuing more. God, I want to be more like you. Jesus, I want to be more like you. And then the third stage is when, and this seems too good to be true, but it's when we actually obtain the righteousness that God has credited to us. It's when we actually live fully in the reality of who Jesus has declared us to be. 1 John 3, 2 tells us about this. Here's what it says. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, listen, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. This is called glorification. And a full picture of salvation is justification, sanctification, but the full picture includes glorification. It's when we fully become the people that God declared us to be when he imputed Christ's righteousness to us. Now that is an exciting thought. So I believe we understand this fourth beatitude correctly if we understand it something like this. Blessed are those whose hunger and thirst for righteousness leads them to Jesus. Blessed are those whose hunger and thirst for righteousness keeps them close to Jesus because they will be justified. They will be credited as righteous. They will be empowered to grow in righteousness. And when Christ returns, they will be like him for they'll see him as he is. So what do we make of all of this? 
first of all, it's a challenge. It calls us to examine whether or not we really hunger for righteousness. And so I want to ask all of us here today to, to do that. Just honestly examine yourself today. Would you describe your hunger for righteousness as 21st century Western hunger or as 1st century Middle Eastern day laborer hunger? If it's 21st century Western hunger, then this beatitude challenges you about the condition of your heart. It is a demanding and I think even frightening beatitude if we really don't care very much about righteousness. And if that's true, like if that's true, you just need to admit that's true. If that's true, then we need to repent. We need to ask God to change our hearts. We need to just be honest with God and say, God, I, I don't care that much about righteousness right now, but I know I should. Would you create in me a clean heart? Would you renew a right spirit within me? Would you give me a right attitude toward the things that I'm doing wrong? God, would you do that for me? Would you have mercy on me in that way? So that's the first thing that I think we take. Here's the second thing. This beatitude is comforting reassurance for all of us here today, all of you here today, who really do care about righteousness, even though it seems to elude you. It's comforting. It is a reminder to all of us here today that God does not expect perfection. He knows that that is out of our reach. It is a reassurance to all of you today that do care about righteousness, that God sees your heart. He sees the concern for righteousness that never quite translates into perfect obedience. And I believe that God wants to say to all of you here today who truly do care about righteousness, you are doing well, that it's in your heart. You're doing well. But most of all, I'd say that this beatitude is a celebration of Jesus who makes sinful people the righteousness of God. It is a reminder that righteousness isn't all on you. It isn't all on me. Actually, it's all on Jesus. It's all on Jesus. It's a reminder that because of Jesus, you have been, or if this hasn't been true of you, it can be, you can be counted as righteous, even though you're not righteous. It's a reminder that because of Jesus, you are or you can be on a lifetime journey of being conformed and transformed into the image of Christ, becoming more and more like Him. And it's a reminder that because of Jesus, you are assured of, or you can be assured of if you haven't been already, that when Jesus Christ returns, you will be like Him, for you'll see Him as he is.
And so it is an encouragement to keep at it. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged and throw in the towel when you fall short. It is an encouragement that God is with you for the long haul. There will be a day when who He's declared you to be and how you actually live are going to finally be in perfect unity. Righteousness credited will be righteousness realized. Righteousness achieved. But here's the key. It will never be your achievement. It will always be entirely Christ's achievement, which is why for eternity we will spend our time praising Him for what He's done for us. Amen. Let's stand. Oh, oh you're my redeemer.